This is the Oanda Podcast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, talking to Oanda senior market analysts across the world. And today we're joined by Craig Earlham, live in our studio in London. How are you doing, Craig? Good to see you. Yeah, it's always good to do these things in person, isn't it? It's so infrequent these days. It used to be so normal, and uh, now it's very much the opposite. Well, normal is slowly but surely uh, returning, and uh, we'll talk more about COVID and what's happening in China in a moment or two. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you about this meeting between Paul Lagarde and Bailey in Portugal, uh, where, as we speak, about halfway through the meeting, has anything come through on the wires about this as to what is uh, said over the last couple of hours? No, not really. I mean, I mean, there has been the comments that have come across the wires, as you say, but so often with these things, it's the event that gets talked about, not just for a few days before, but for a week or two weeks before this big event. You've got the head of the Federal Reserve, the world's largest central bank, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, all on the same panel, all at the same ECB event in Portugal, all who of whom are very active, should we say, on the monetary policy stage right now because you've got the Fed tightening rates aggressively, the ECB finally raising rates or ready to raise rates from July for the first time in a decade, the Bank of England continuing to throw out 25 basis points while accepting that they're heading for a recession. Um, three central banks on, this, on, on similar paths but in very different ways, I guess. So all of whom could say something that could trigger a big reaction in the market. This isn't like five years ago where they're all at rock bottom interest rates and you're just trying to get the latest forward guidance out of these people. These are very active right now and any comments could trigger something big in the market. So there's been a lot of hype going into this uh, panel discussion. But as is so often the case, it's a massive anticlimax so far. They are sticking to the line. They're saying nothing surprising. They're saying nothing remotely interesting, quite frankly. And that could change. We are, like I say, in the midst of it right now. But if the first hour or so is anything to go by, I think this is just going to be another massive anticlimax. And we're all going to be left waiting for the speeches later on from James Bullard, from even Christine Lagarde is due to speak again. We've got more speeches from Fed policymakers and others tomorrow. We've got more economic data. They're the type of things which we're going to be left looking forward to after such a a huge build-up and potentially just a bit of a disappointment, ultimately. Although ECB President Christine Lagarde has at least played down recession risks, and she said that the ECB is ready to move faster on rates if needed. Is that because, I mean, that was ahead of the meeting. Is that because she feels a little bit of pressure to say that at this stage? I mean, isn't that just the playbook at this point? The Bank of England said they may start raising rates in, what was it, last September at this point? They, we may raise rates in November. They held off. They went in December as well. We're going to avoid an, a recession. We'll just need to raise rates a few times. Um, inflation is a massive problem. It's transitory, but we need to start raising rates now just to kind of get a grip with it. Then by March, they're saying, well, actually, we need to keep raising interest rates and a recession is plausible. Then maybe about a month later, a recession is kind of baked in for the end of the year. The Federal Reserve, late last year, inflation is transitory. We don't need to do anything. Come January, inflation is a bigger problem. It's rising faster than we thought. We may need to start raising rates. March, we start raising rates. May, whatever it is, we start doing supersized rate hikes, but we're going to avoid a recession. We're aiming for a soft landing. <laughs> yeah. Soft landing looks harder. A week or two ago, a recession looks possible. Next is, and a recession is probable, but it'll just be shallow and so on and so forth. 
The ECB is only starting to raise interest rates next month. You've got to give it time to follow the playbook and catch up. I'm sure by the end of the year, the rhetoric will have evolved like they have elsewhere. Uh, so, like I said, they're all at different parts of the trajectory in terms of the tightening cycle. All have different challenges and issues. The UK, I think we have probably among the greater issues. We're not going to see interest rates as high as the US, but they've already accepted a recession because the economy is far more fragile and vulnerable. So... They all have their own issues. The ECB's issue is fragmentation. The ECB's issue is the fact that this spread between Germany and Italy is growing more and more by the week. And talk of this anti-fragmentation tool has managed to rein that in a little bit. But for the ECB to have not even raised rates once and the deposit rate to be at minus 0.5% at a time when the Italian yield on the 10-year went beyond 4% already. Bearing in mind that at the height of the debt crisis... Italy's yield on that 10-year was around 7 to 8%. So already it's got their wind deposit rates minus 0.5 and they were still buying bonds. That's the ECB's biggest problem right now. And yeah, they may tip the economy towards a recession, especially given the exacerbation that comes with the war in Ukraine. Uh, the energy crisis they've got and now they're having to ration, etc. later this year. They have big problems as well, but uh, all slightly different problems, but all on the same path. And it's ironic that uh, as soon as the ECB start talking about raising rates, that on the other side of the Atlantic, they're talking about maybe not increasing them quite as much. That's how far behind Europe is on this. It is. And again, they're on the, like, like I just said, they're all on the same path, but I guess they all have different issues. Part of the difference between Europe and the US is that they're just not seeing the kind of ingrained inflation that the US is seeing. The US is seeing an extremely tight labour market and high wage growth. The UK was seeing something similar. The ECB hasn't had that. They haven't had the wage growth yet. So they haven't got the evidence in the labour market that it's becoming ingrained in people's consciousness, that it's becoming ingrained in the wider labour market, which is where it can become this kind of wage price spiral, where it can become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, a doom loop, if you will. Um, that hasn't really happened in Europe. What has happened in Europe, which is what I think's made the move, is the fact that inflation's become far more widespread. And that's kind of the next step before we see the other things and that's why they're moving now. So they are behind the curve in terms of where the US is and where the UK is, but their situation is still slightly differently. But ultimately, one thing that none of them can get away from is that what started off as a global pandemic, then supply chain issues has turned into almost artificially tight labour markets because of people not returning to the labour market after the pandemic and uh, more widespread inflation because of the war in Ukraine, the impact on food, etc., all of these factors are now building and building and building, and that's one thing that they all have to contend with. Mm, bit of a perfect storm, really, isn't it? And uh, oil is very much part of that. Oil and energy costs, of course, very much part of that. And uh, OPEC Plus meets tomorrow. Naturally, there are no plans to increase supply. That isn't a surprise. But um, some interesting comments from the um, UAE to Emmanuel Macron regarding capacity. What uh, was was he told there? So he was essentially told that the UAE and Saudi Arabia don't have that much spare capacity at all. Now, what was interesting about that is while OPEC Plus has continued to raise initially by 400,000, then 432,000 barrels a day, and then I think it's 658 that it was increased to over the course of the summer because of the increased use. Um, so for those couple of summer months, they decided to go for, I think it was around 650, 658. Um the idea was always that while OPEC Plus are not responding to market pricing, continuing to blame geopol geopolitical 
issues because they don't want to specifically say Russia invading Ukraine. Um, they, what has always been the narrative from outside of the group and from within organizations like I think the IEA, the EIA um, and the OECD is that OPEC plus needs to do more in particular Saudi Arabia and the UAE and, other, and one or two others have plenty of spare capacity in which to do so. And what they're effectively saying is that's not true. We don't have that spare capacity. Um, and that's really interesting because that means that there's not much more that this group can do. Bearing in mind also that this group as a whole is now delivering uh, 250%, 256% of its output cut target, which means that it's basically failing miserably to keep up with its actual production targets. What that accounts for is over the course of this last year, uh, this last year or so, when they have been gradually raising uh, production in the aftermath of those pandemic initial pandemic cuts, they are more than half a billion barrels of oil behind where they plan to be at this point. Mm. No wonder the market's so tight. And it's not getting better. So they are continuing. I think it's 2.6 million barrels a day. They are short of their target. Wow. Which gives you that more than half a billion uh, barrels of, uh, under, of undersupply to where they wanted to be. So this is a group that can't really keep up with the demand and can't even keep up with their own targets. And it's not like there's an abundance of supply anywhere else. The US is currently producing around a little over a million barrels per day less than they were. They were at their peak before the pandemic started. Why is that? Because you thought they'd have plenty of spare. So one of the reasons is that when during the shale expansion, a lot of these shale companies were highly leveraged and were drilling to make efficiencies in order to produce as much oil as possible um, because there was strong demand. And we saw high levels of indebtedness. Then you saw a lot of consolidation in the industry. And then you saw a decision by uh, shareholders by, or by directors to return cash to shareholders via dividends or share buybacks. So what we saw is lower investment and more shareholder returns. Uh, once the, Because the industry had grown so fast, we saw a lot of consolidation in the industry as well. That lack of investment has to catch up somewhere. That's new wells that aren't being drilled. That is, um, So that is oil that ultimately will not be produced further down the line. This is an industry that was growing at a rapid rate. Um, so we didn't see that same level of investment. And that's actually true more globally as well. That's one of the reasons why these, a number of these countries just can't keep up with their targets is because of underinvestment uh, over, the last, uh, over the last few years. Partly as well driven by the kind of green revolution and the fact that there's a lot more investment in these kind of move towards the kind of greener technologies. So we're kind of, there's a, there's a number of different factors which are really contributing uh, to that. What we're seeing a lot more now is um, in the US is using existing wells to try and kind of get extract more oil as a result. It's kind of a cheaper, cheaper way of doing it. Um, and we are slowly seeing US output rise, but like I said, we're still a little over a million barrels a day short, in, even in the US, than what we saw. And then there's outages everywhere elsewhere, like Libya, for example, we're seeing uh, supply shortages as well because of various factors. So all in all, we're looking at the global supply uh, situation, and it just simply isn't keeping up with global demand. We're, we're kind of at a point now where the only hope for lower oil prices is sadly much lower growth or more likely a recession leading to lower demand, which creates more of a balance in the shorter term and gives supplier a chance to ultimately catch up. That's the almost the sad state of affairs we have, and that's why oil prices are so high, and that's why we're seeing oil now rallying for a fourth consecutive day. Add into that 
what you've mentioned earlier on, China and uh, their, should we say, slight softening of zero <laughs> COVID strategy? It's not lifting of restrictions, is it? It's more softly, softly approach. Yeah, halving the quarantine uh, mm. time to a week, basically trying to allow a little more flexibility in its approach, not too much more, still committed to zero COVID, but allowing a little bit more flexibility. What the important thing here is that it's, the markets are taken as a sign that ultimately the leadership in China is trying to look at the situation and say, COVID isn't going away. We need to try and find a way where we can continue to have our core focus, which is preserving life. But at the same time, we can't have the economy grinding to a halt every four or five weeks because we see a small outbreak. Or we need to try and find a way. It's almost like this first step towards living with COVID, which you've seen other countries do, but on a far, on a far softer level. This kind of move enables the economy to hopefully tick along that much better, uh, which enables the economy to grow more because they are going to, at this point, their growth targets are 5.5% this year are going to be not just missed, they're going to be missed by a, a really wide margin. How much longer can you be committed to such a stringent strategy? But from a trader's perspective, what that means is that there's chances are that there's going to be more demand for oil from China, the world's largest importer, and perhaps we'll see more softening. Maybe we'll see more tweaks to their zero COVID strategy, which allows for a more softer approach, which allows for a more economically driven policy, which again means more demand further down the road at a time when demand is already uh, um, far stronger than supply. Although with more help for the supply lines, because we know a lot of those have been shut down because of COVID restrictions in China. So, I mean, when we're, it, there's, there is a refining issue, there is no doubt, which is why we're seeing higher prices at the pump. We are seeing tight, uh, we are seeing t- uh, tightness in that market as well, which is why refining margins are as high as they are, which is why even though oil prices in the broader market um, are not at record highs, the price at the pump is. Uh, and that's a refining issue. And of course, there is a big refining uh, process in China, which, which could potentially be feeding that kind of issue although i think that's probably at this point more related to again a lack of investment but also uh the war in ukraine and therefore the refining um process in russia and the fact that not buying refined uh fuels from russia or the far at least a far smaller amount um creates that kind of issue creates that kind of uh, issue okay let's talk about the rest of the week to come we're talking on wednesday afternoon here in london we do have quite a lot of economic data out tomorrow what should we look out for like i say tomorrow i think the opec plus meeting is the headline but there is a lot of economic data as well and we do have mostly tier two tier three data so we've got things like refined revised uh data which is always something that you kind of pay attention to but it doesn't tend to get the markets moving quite so much i think the standout tomorrow from a data perspective is the US inflation and income and spending data. When you bear in mind uh, that so much focus right now is on this fine balance between raising interest rates to deal with inflation and try not to tip the economy into recession, it does seem that many, there is a strong debate going on right now about whether a recession is unavoidable. It's not fully priced into the markets at this point and central banks, some are continuing to push back. But if we continue to see signs that inflation is still running strong, 
then that becomes an increasingly difficult debate to have. So the PC price index, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, that's released tomorrow, an hour ahead of the open, and that's released alongside the income spending data. I think that's going to be the key release uh, as far as tomorrow is concerned. Uh, but like I said, there's plenty of other data released alongside that, be that GDP from Canada or whether that's uh, inflation from parts of Europe, final GDP from the UK, things like that. All these data points are released tomorrow. We've got a few more again on Friday as well. Um, plenty to focus on, plenty that could potentially move the needle in the markets. And hopefully so, because the markets have settled down a little bit over the course of the last two weeks. I think we really saw a lot of action around the end of that week when we had the surprise ECB meeting, the Bank of England meeting, the Fed meeting, the Swiss National Bank uh, raising interest by 50 basis points. We had all of this activity all in one go. And it feels like there's kind of been a case since then of investors taking a bit of a breather. And I think nowhere has that been more evident than gold and Bitcoin. To one of the rare occasions when I'm mentioning them in the same sentence, but Bitcoin's kind of frozen around $20,000 looking vulnerable. Gold has just been range trading around 1830 and we haven't seen much movement on the net front. So hopefully some of this data over the next 24, 48 hours can uh, inject some life into there, shall we say. Okay, Craig, thanks very much for joining us today. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. This is the Oanda Podcast.